Words like joy, glee, cheer, exhilaration, all synonyms for happiness in the English language. And who doesn't want to be happier in their daily life? But could other languages hold the key to broadening our definition of happiness? Dr. Tim Lomas has spent his career studying how other cultures describe the spectrum of experiencing joy. Lomas is the creator of the Positive Lexicography and author of numerous books looking at words that have no comparison in English. I spoke with him about what we can learn about happiness from other cultures by first defining what that term even means. There's obviously so many different ways of looking at this term and it does get used in different ways. Um, some people use it more narrowly, perhaps just as a synonym of something like pleasure. But other people use it more expansively. That's when you get people saying things like, you know, a deeper form of happiness or those sorts of phrases. And I tend to prefer using it in the, the second way. Uh, if you To go in a bit more detail, sometimes I think of something like well-being as a really overarching term. And then you can kind of perhaps separate that into physical and mental well-being. Um, and then perhaps each of those you could see as being on some kind of spectrum from illness to health. Um, and then sometimes people put happiness as kind of the positive territory of the, the spectrum from uh, the, the um, psychological and mental spectrum from illness to health. So that's one way of looking at it. Um, and then, you know, you can go into fine grained detail and think about different forms of happiness. So um, there's often a distinction made between two main forms. For example, like hedonic versus what's called eudaimonic happiness. So hedonic happiness you know, itself refracts into different forms, like uh, a cognitive form that's like life satisfaction and then a more affective form that's like about positive emotions. Um, and then the eudaimonic happiness relates to this uh, term from classical Greece that's actually to do with having a conscience and a sense of self-development and authenticity. So when they talk about eudaimonic happiness, that's more about the cultivation of like character and finding meaning and purpose in life. So that's already two different broad types of happiness. But then you can get other, other forms people talk about, you know, in relation to, for example, spirituality or balance and harmony and peace and tranquility. So it's quite a kind of rich and varied terrain. I hope that answers the question, obviously. Really, what we're talking about is not only an abstract idea, but also the, the physical reality of that. We're talking anywhere from like the, the happiness that you feel for a friend doing something, you know, excellent, doing something great, having a job promotion to the happiness you feel when you get an ice cream cone. There's a lot of spectrum here that we're going to be diving into. Yeah, there's such a range there. And then also, you know, I think sometimes maybe in more Western cultures, we have a tendency to think of happiness more in perhaps abstract cognitive terms. But, you know, I think it's important to recognize the kind of the extent to which kind of mind and body are intertwined. And, you know, I think emotions have a real kind of somatic or physiological or, you know, phenomenological aspect to them. So it kind of it does incorporate the body as well. So it's not just, I think, ideas or even emotions in, in the mind, but um, I think perhaps it's interwoven throughout the body in ways which, which we don't really appreciate perhaps enough. I would, I would have to agree with that for sure. So in your study of words and translations of words from other cultures and, and how they define the spectrum the huge spectrum of happiness. I, I think another, another maybe, uh, another maybe difficulty, possibly especially with Americans, but with Western culture in general, is that there is a tendency to make the idea of happiness black and white. It either is or it isn't, 
and that is we're striving toward is to change that into broaden that you know spectrum of all these different ways that we can experience what is called some form of happiness in, in other cultures. So could you describe how how in your studies, how words help in experiencing life differently? One of the metaphors I like to, I find helpful in thinking about this work, it's not my own metaphor. I mean, it dates back people using it, you know, back a hundred years ago, but this idea of language, one of its main functions being as a form of cartography. So mapping, mapping our experiential world, you know, the world around us, but also our inner world of, you know, subjective thoughts and feelings. Um, and then that's not the only function of language, but it's one of the main ones. And I think I find it helpful to think of language as being like a map of our worlds that helps us navigate these and orient ourselves and move around. Um, and, you know, it's quite a rich and productive metaphor in many ways, because sometimes when I think of real world geographical maps, you know, they are mapping an existing world, but to an extent, where the boundaries are imposed and the regions are circumscribed it's kind of somewhat arbitrary and it's influenced by kind of cultural factors and traditions and values and so on so you could easily draw the boundaries in subtly different ways um, for example one language might impose boundaries in slightly different places or a particular language might have a much more detailed map with respect to a region of experience compared to another map so one example i often think of there is the way that um, particularly cultures, you know, in the East, so-called, um, have a really detailed set of ideas and practices relating to meditative states and meditative practices. So just a really detailed lexicon charting that region of experience and practice in real great detail. Whereas, I mean, I know in more Western cultures, we do have traditions of like contemplative prayer, which has some similarities, but we do tend to have less of a tradition of these meditative ideas and practices. And then I think really our, our mapping of that region it's much less detailed we might just label it broadly as meditation without having these kind of fine-grained differentiations so this idea that languages can differ in the way in which they map this experiential territory um, and then the significance there is that that seems to really influence how people who speak those languages uh, not just to understand the world but also experience it and perceive it there's a lot of this work here aside from untranslatability um, it's often referred to as the linguistic relativity hypothesis or sometimes the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. I know people have seen that film, Arrival. It's such a beautiful film about you know, the aliens and they're trying to communicate with them. And that's one of the uh, theories they invoke in that film. And this idea that you know, differences in language can shape, not necessarily determine, I think there are some universals, but they do shape how people might experience the world. So um, one of the classic examples you'll find in the literature is differences in the way different cultures pass up the color spectrum and even in terms of what they mean by color and then people have devised some kind of clever experiments to say show that that actually seems to change how people might perceive the world and experience the world so i think that's what's really interesting with this differences in languages one way to think about it like i say is about how they can carve up the territory through imposing conceptual boundaries but then that influencing just how we how we go about experiencing the world. Pointing to the film Arrival, uh, the 2016 film starring Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams is a really interesting way to compare how language changes our experience of life and of the world. We're, we're talking specifically about 
non-English languages that have the bigger spectrum of describing. And, and the word happiness, you know, just doesn't do it. I mean, joy, peace, contentedness, some, something, something along those lines, I think, is what, what we're really getting to. And I want to ask a language like English, which is such a, a multitude of different influences, French and Latin and Dutch and German and all these different things. Why is the English language so, so poor at being able to, to describe that spectrum of joy? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I might have to perhaps disagree with it. I, I actually think you know, English is actually very rich. At, um, so it's not so much that it's impoverished in its lexicon compared to other languages, but I don't think it's necessarily richer either. It's just the lexicon has been configured differently and it's carved up the territory in different ways. So it's not that English is necessarily impoverished relative to other languages, but if you took all languages as a whole, then it would be missing out on certain terms. But, you know, I think you could say probably the same thing for other languages that from their perspective, there'd be words lacking in those languages. Uh, but then it's really interesting what you say about the nature of English and the way it, it's a weird phrase, but it like borrows words from other languages. That's the word they use in linguistics um, to bring them in as loan words. But that's actually, I think, very common across most languages because that's partly how languages have evolved, really. You know, a concept or a practice might be identified in another language and then it lacks a given language might lack that term, but then people would still find a need to express that concept and then notice, for example, that another language had a term and then they frequently borrow these terms. And I don't think English is unique in that. I think all languages have that process and it's really fascinating because um, it was actually a really interesting sideline because I you know, obviously got really interested in untranslatable words and um, the need for English to be augmented by these words. But then it really kind of took me down the sidelines to think about, well, like, what, is, what is English? And then obviously it comes from a Germanic tongue back in the fifth century, but then it's evolved through bringing in words from so many other languages. I did another paper just really looking at the etymology of words we use in psychology. I just focused on one particular paper. And off the top of my head, I think you know, two thirds of the words were borrowed from languages like you say, Latin and Greek and French and Arabic and Spanish. Um, and I think that is the way languages and cultures evolve. And I, th I think it's common across languages. I think I've read analyses that show that different languages do it to different degrees. So it's not that they're all comparable, but I think all languages become enriched by, and all cultures really from learning from each other and kind of sometimes taking on board their words and bringing them into the language. You know, bringing it into what's happening in the world today, especially in the U.S. with the coronavirus pandemic, we keep using words like uncertain, difficult, you know, scary time that we're all going through. And now that we're six, soon going on seven months into some sort of lockdown across across the U.S., some sort of quarantine, is there a language or culture that you've come across that you've studied that has more words for describing finding optimism or joy with this background of uncertainty and scariness and grief as well? That's a really interesting question and it's really important. So I, I struggle to sometimes identify one language as being kind of better or richer than another. But one that comes to mind, just because this is a personal interest of mine, I've been become really fascinated by particularly Japanese because, you know, I think for the last 20 years, just on a personal note, I've been very interested in you know, Buddhism and meditation um, and then some of the, you know, theories and philosophies behind this um so for example in buddhism there is you know theories about life being uncertain and 
fleeting and ephemeral and changing. Um, and on the basis of that, they have developed a rich language for not just seeing and understanding this transiency and this uncertainty, but even trying to find um, moments of value and beauty in it, even as much as that sounds strange or difficult. Um, so like in Zen Buddhism, for example, uh, one of the symbols of, of this transiency and per perhaps even trying to appreciate it is like the cherry blossoms, um, which are, you know, really this real evanescent beauty that doesn't last long. And there's, there's a real poignancy in that, but then there's also beauty that's almost accentuated by that. And I don't know if that helps at this time, but it, it does feel to me, you know, as I say this as something that personally, you know, reflecting on that can be can be kind of helpful it's just a different perspective I, I really appreciated these kind of Japanese concepts around aesthetics and value in as much as for me at least it heightens my perception of the beauty of the world and trying to appreciate it because you know life is fleeting and we all I think it's really brought home to us all around and there's such tragedy in that and for me it makes me realize all the more how precious life is and loved ones are and thing that's things that matter to us so of course we want things to be more stable and and secure and hopefully they will be but you know even in these times i guess it's re really renewed my you know appreciation for the life i lived and hope to live again and the people around me and our civilization and so almost like realizing how fragile our lives these lives are our civilization is realizing how kind of fragile and also fleeting it is heightens my appreciation and my kind of hope to try and contribute to some kind of stability. So that's just some reflections, you know, based on, you know, what little I do understand of these Japanese concepts and Buddhism more generally. Well, uh, this has been a really, really beautiful conversation, I think. And before we go, can you leave us with one word from Japanese that you feel might be helpful for people? Perhaps I can give two, because there's two concepts that I've encountered that seem to be a counterpart to one another. Um, and one of them is this, it's not a word so much as a phrase, but it's mono no aware. I'm sorry, that's probably a terrible pronunciation if anyone is a Japanese speaker. Um, I think this refers to kind of sensitivity to the nature of the world. I think it's a pathos of things or of life, kind of etymologically. Um, and this speaks to this sensitivity and appreciation of you know, the ephemeral, ephemerality and evanescence of life. And, you know, the symbol of that would be the cherry, kind of cherry blossoms. And then, but a, count, a nice counterpart, I don't know, listeners might be familiar with this concept of wabi-sabi, which I think I struggle because, you know, I'm not Japanese and I'm trying to kind of wrestle with these concepts and see what they mean. But as far as I understand it, it's almost a, some kind of counterpart in as much as even while the world is fleeting and changing, you know, there's real value and depth and dignity in that change. So Wabi Sabi is more about finding beauty in phenomena that are you know, aging and weathered and, you know, withering and becoming old. So perhaps a symbol of that might be, an, you know, an old tree in winter. So it's quite a different form of beauty, but it almost functions as this counterpart to Mononoari. So we can, you know, find value in the... F and appreciation the fact that things are changing but then also as they change they remain full of depth and beauty and meaning so they seem to work nice you know well together and as much as I find them 
reflecting on them to be quite you know, meaningful to me and help, perhaps even helpful at this time and maybe hopefully others might feel similar.